You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our text, as well as our scripture reading this morning, is taken from the Acts of the Apostles. We turn to chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he took out his clothes in protest and said to them, or he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. And they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in the front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it must be nice to be able to leave a town without the idea that you're running for your life or that you are being booted out of the place. Because, you know, that had pretty well been the Apostle Paul's experience until now. His departures from Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica had all been less than pleasant. But that had not been the case with Athens, the last stop, which we looked at last Sunday, or the Sunday before. And why not? Well, because in Athens there was no vocal group of Jewish people out to persecute him and evict him. So it is that the Apostle Paul is able to leave the city of Athens on his own terms, of his own free will. No one forces him or turfs him out. 
But then the question arises, what next? Where will he go to next? And the answer is soon given, for the Apostle Paul next decides to go to the city of Corinth. And that, in a way, is both expected as well as surprising. It's expected because Corinth was a very large city. In Paul's day, indeed, it was one of the largest cities around the Mediterranean Sea. It was bigger than Ephesus. It was much, much bigger than Athens. Athens had only about 10,000 residents, whereas the city of Corinth had at least half a million people. Today, of course, it's the other way around. Athens has a lot more people, and Corinth is all but forgotten, but not then. And if you ask what is it that made Corinth such a much larger city, well, it was the location because Corinth had two ports. It was at the juncture of a major world trading route, and from Corinth you could come in and go out in all directions. And so the goods and the people flowed into Corinth, and they flowed out of Corinth, and the city became a great commercial center. But Corinth was also something else. It was not just a great commercial center. It was also something that makes Paul's stop there a bit of a surprise. For Corinth is also a great immoral center. If you were to visit Corinth today, you would see little more than ruin and rubble. But still, rising above the ruins and the rubble, there is still a huge hill. And in ancient days, on that hill called the Acrocorinth, there used to be a temple of Venus or Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And in Paul's time, that temple had at least 1,000 priestesses who at night would roam the streets of Corinth and become holy hookers. And the result was that Corinth was known far and wide as a very immoral city. Its name to Corinthian eyes became synonymous with fornication, immorality, prostitution, and depravity. Yes, and of course all of that had an impact on its people. Many of them, too, lived lives of corruption and fornication, And many of them also let their wealth and their importance go to their heads, and they boasted about their commerce and their businesses, their culture, their athletic games, and their political power in the area. So you see, not exactly a good place in which to bring the gospel. Nevertheless, Paul brings it. He brings it next. Corinth is next on the apostolic road trip. And how does he bring the gospel to that depraved place? Well, I preached to you on the following theme, Christ in Corinth. So Christ comes with the Apostle Paul to Corinth. And beloved, when the Apostle Paul comes to Corinth, what is the first thing that happens? Are we first told that he goes once again to the synagogue to preach there? No, this time we are told that Paul gets a few new friends as well as takes up a lowly job. With respect to his new friends, you can read about that in our scripture passage. They're called Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. In Romans 16, they are called fellow workers in Christ. And they had come 
to Corinth from Rome. And actually, if you notice carefully, they had been evicted from Rome. Just like the Apostle Paul, they knew what it was like to get kicked out of town. Yes, and just like Paul, it seems that the cause had everything to do with the clash between Jews and Christians, or Christians who, by and large, were formerly Jews. Suetonius, the Roman historian, tells us that the emperor Claudius banished the Jews from Rome. In reality, though, and we're not going to get into all of the details, it was actually the Christians, by and large, that he banished from Rome, and Priscilla and Aquila were among them. So this couple arrives in Corinth, and there they meet the Apostle Paul, and they start the beginning of a lifelong friendship, and they also become with Paul fellow workers to spread and advance the gospel. So you can say Paul picks up some new friends in Corinth, but Paul also picks up an old job. Back in those days, if you were a rabbi, you also had to learn a certain trade. And Paul earlier had learned the trade of a tent maker or somebody who worked with leather and with various kinds of cloth. He probably knew how to tan hides. He knew how to weave, to stitch, and even how to dye cloth. And so in Corinth, Paul made ends meet by taking up his tent-making trade, and Aquila and Priscilla, who were in the same business, did likewise. And so we have here a case of an apostle of Jesus Christ, in fact, one of the main apostles of Jesus Christ, working with his hands. And the question arises naturally, what are we to think of that? And how are we to view this? Today, some would say, well, actually, all ministers of the gospel should be required to do this. Both candidate DeYoung and I should go back to school, and we should learn a trade or a profession. We should learn to combine preaching with real work. We should know what it's like to labor in the trenches. Now, beloved, before any more of you crawl onto that bandwagon, some other things need to be considered. In the first place, we all need to remember that Paul voluntarily renounced his right to be financially supported by the churches. And he did that because of his enemies who would level accusations against him that he was money hungry or that he was after an easy cushy job. So for that reason, Paul wanted nothing to do with monetary things. And he voluntarily gave up the right to receive a living from the church. And in the second place, we also need to remember that several times in his letter, Paul insists that Christian pastors are to be supported by their parishioners. Galatians 6, verse 6 comes to mind. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor And also 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul speaks about the right of support. And so if you ask, is tent making wrong? The answer is no. There is still a place for it, especially in very small congregations where they cannot support a full-time pastor. 
And as well, I would say it is also still legitimate to get into a country where if you're a Christian, you'll never get there. So you have to go there under another profession, another occupation. But still, in most normal cases, the gospel worker should be supported and able to devote himself without financial worries to the cause of the gospel. And you notice in that connection, too, that once Silas and Timothy come to Corinth, Paul switches over. He goes from being a part-time tent maker to being a full-time preacher. It says in verse 5 that he devoted himself exclusively to preaching. It would appear that others now made it possible for him to preach the gospel not just on the Sabbath day, on all the days of the week. So where did he preach? Well, it says in verse 4 of our text that every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. It says in verse 5 that Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. In other words, he spent all of his time trying to convince the Jews that They no longer had to pray for, to hope in, to look forward, or to yearn for the coming of the Messiah. Paul says, I've got good news for you. The Messiah has come. He's come in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So who receives all of the attention, the focus, and the stress in the preaching of the Apostle Paul? It really is the Lord Jesus Christ. His gloriously unique person and his wonderfully complete work of redemption. You know, a lot of preachers both then and now have their own preaching agendas. Sometimes if you look what's on the agenda, you see money, self-improvement, no drinking, Politics of one stripe or another, hats on for the ladies in the church, the Bible, this Bible, translation only, federal vision, the Roman Catholic Church, and the list goes on and on. So often preaching is all about issues, as well as personalities. But that's not so with Paul. His preaching is all about Christ. Yes, and and if you want proof of that, you need only to turn, for example, to those letters that he wrote to the church at Corinth. And of course, they deal with issues and they deal with people. But notice they always do so from the perspective of Jesus Christ as Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. Paul writes, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. We preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. That's that's Paul's motto. It runs like a thread throughout his entire preaching ministry. And you know, it should run like a thread through the preaching ministry of every true pastor of the word of the gospel. So Paul preaches Christ. 
And what happens when he preaches Christ? Well, you know, like a worn out record. The Jews, verse 6 says, oppressed or opposed Paul and became abusive. As in Philippi, as in Berea, as in Thessalonica, so now also in Corinth. Most of the Jews refused to listen to Paul. And why did they refuse to listen? Because they were stuck to their perverted idea that the Messiah, when he comes, will come in power, in triumph, in glory, in affluence, in respectability, in good looks. They want nothing to do with a Messiah who saves from sin, who suffers, gets beaten up, mocked, sentenced, horror of horrors, crucified, and put to death. They want a theology of glory, not a theology Suffering. So now what? What does Paul do? Well, notice he does something that's rather strange to our ears and eyes. It says in verse 6, He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own head. I am clear of my responsibility. Note he shook out his clothes in protest. What does that mean? What are we supposed to think when a man stands up in front of a whole bunch of people and does a bit of a jig or a dance with the result that the dust begins to fly? Is he mad? Is he drunk? Is he funny? It's a lot worse than that. It's condemning. It's renouncing. You know what Paul does all the, goes all the way back to, to Jesus, but even further back. It goes all the way to, to Ezekiel the prophet. And you can read what the Lord Jesus says about this in, in Matthew 10 verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or that town. That's like saying when they won't listen to you, you got to dance. Paul says, in effect, I've done my duty. I brought you the gospel. I sought to persuade you day after day, week after week, month after month. You've rejected the gospel. Now the consequences are on your own head. And don't blame me when one day you stand before the Lord on that great and terrible day. And don't blame me when you have no covering for your sins. Don't blame me when you'll not be like those who find themselves covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's shaking is not to be equated with a dance of joy. It's a dance of death. A terrible way to dance. But then as the saying goes, when God closes a door, in this case the Jewish door, he often opens a window. 
For next we're told that whereas the synagogue rejects him, the neighbors welcome him. Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, opens up his house and household to Paul. In addition, and would you believe it, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And finally, we're told that many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So again, the news isn't all bad. Again, the majority says no to the gospel. But a believing remnant say, yes, this is the word of the Lord. And that yes is sealed with a sacrament, the sacrament of baptism. But there's more. For not only does the Apostle Paul again see some fruit on his labors, but now he also, notice, becomes the recipient of a vision from the Lord, meaning, in this case, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, what he saw, we're not told, but what he heard, we get to know about. What he heard really can be summarized in kind of four words. First, in this vision, there is a word of of encouragement. Jesus says to Paul, do not be afraid. In Greek, it's meophobu. You find it everywhere in the Bible. It's one of those very popular expressions. It's always, it seems to be, on the lips of of God the Father and and God the Son. It's a great word of, of reassurance. Don't be afraid. Don't let your fears get to you and overwhelm your life. Don't live a life of insecurity and uncertainty. Live boldly, confidently, bravely, aphobic. And second, in this vision, there is also a word of calling. Jesus tells Paul that now is not the time to zip his lip, move off to one of the Greek islands and retire. No, he's to persevere. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. You and I know, of course, that criticism and opposition often intimidate and they cause people to clam up. Well, Paul is not allowed to clam up. His mouth has to keep on moving and the gospel has to keep on coming. That's his calling. That's his task. And third, there is in this vision also a word of assurance. It too is an old word as well as an often heard expression in the scriptures. And it is this, for I am with you. Isn't that what God said to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Joshua, Moses, David and others? And isn't that what Jesus says to his followers and to his church shortly before he ascends? I am with you always, even to the close of the age. Contrary to what he so often may feel, 
Paul is never really and truly alone. Someone is always there with him. That someone is Christ. That someone is always watching over him too. No one is going to attack you and harm you. And fourth, beloved, there is in this vision, in addition to a word of encouragement, calling and assurance, also a word of revelation. Our Lord Jesus Christ finally says, I have many, many people in this city. It's almost like what God says to Elijah, who thinks I'm the only one. And the Lord says, there's 7,000 people, Elijah, who haven't bowed their knees to Baal, and I know them, and I see them. And just like God the Father, so Jesus Christ the Son can see what you and I cannot see and Paul cannot see. He can look into our hearts, into homes, into families, and into marriages. And he can also see the Father's great work of election being worked out. He knows who was chosen before time. And who's coming to faith in time. He doesn't give Paul names, but he gives them hope and expectation. There are many people of mine in this place. What astounding knowledge and what wondrous insight. And what comforting and encouraging words and little wonder that the Apostle Paul stays there for another year and a half. Now, of course, beloved, all those words in our text apply directly to the Apostle Paul. But, you know, you can also say that all of those four words in this vision in various ways also apply to all of God's children. Not only him, but also we are to live our lives in the firm conviction that we need not fear. It's a promise to Paul and to all of God's people. There's also in that word the calling that that our sense of calling, of testifying and witnessing is never to cease as long as we are in this life. And there's also to be this sense that Christ's presence bides with his church and with his people forever. And there's this knowledge that we have a sovereign Lord who knows everything, sees everything, understands everything. In him we trust. In him we stand and move and have our being. In him we flourish and in him we rejoice. And one more thing, one last thing in him and through him will also be vindicated. And the Apostle Paul must have felt that vindication as well. Later, when a new pro-council comes into town, the Jews see a new opportunity to get at the Apostle Paul. And so they drag him before the new pro-council, Gallio. Of course, they're up to their old tricks again, trying to get the Romans to do the dirty work for them. Only notice, this time the Jews don't even get to first base. 
No sooner do they level their charge again, and before Paul even gets a chance to rebut it, Gallio says, get out of my court. I will not be a judge of such things. You know, the Jews were were trying to prove that Paul was really hawking a new religion in Corinth. And that in that way, he was undermining the established religions of Rome and Greece and even of Judaism. But notice, Gallio sees through the smokescreen and determines that this is an internal matter. He's not going to adjudicate it. You know how that must have delighted the Apostle Paul and encouraged him? You know, at last he can stand before a judge and and he can walk out of court instead of being hustled and rushed out of court and thrown out of the city. For once he can leave as a free man. And he continued to do his work. Yes, and you can be sure that behind all of this, Paul saw more than simply the hand of Gallio. He saw the hand of Jesus. He saw Jesus showing him and others that that his promises of companionship are not empty. That his presence, his abiding presence in our life is not just wishful thinking. No, Jesus really does go with his church and with his servants and with his people. Why sometimes there's even a bit of humor attached to it. Look what happens at the end of our text. The new synagogue ruler who had replaced Crispus, a man by the name of Sosthenes, is no sooner out of the courtroom and he is beaten up by his fellow Jews. Probably, we don't know for sure, but probably he had been the one who had organized this protest to Gallio and it had backfired and now all the Jews in frustration decide to give him a good thrashing. The thrashing that Paul should have received, normally would have received, falls on one of his enemies instead. And I think that's a bit of irony, a bit of divine humor. But you know, it's it's also something else. It's a bit of a preview. Because you know, we're, we're all headed towards a day when not just Paul will be vindicated, but when all of God's people will be vindicated. In addition, we're headed towards a day when the tables will be turned in a most unexpected and surprising fashion. For on that day, all people will see Jesus. Yes, Jesus, the suffering Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And they will see his people, his often ridiculed, abused, beaten, and tortured people, suffering no more. It'll be over. Instead, they'll be presented and promoted, triumphant and transformed, ruling 
and reigning. Reveling in the victory of the Lamb of God. To the God who vindicates his servants will vindicate his people one day. And he will do it gloriously. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.